Friends, we've been in a sermon series as uh, we work our way towards uh, Easter. We've uh, been essentially working our way along the, the book of Luke. And uh, starting in chapter 10, where Jesus said, I'm, uh, chapter 9 actually, where Jesus said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to set my face to Jerusalem. That's where I'm headed. And uh, we've just been picking up, we're on week three of this journey to Jerusalem. Of course, Jesus knew what would happen in Jerusalem. He tells his disciples before he even decides to go, he says, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to suffer. Uh, I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to be betrayed. I'll be killed. I'll be buried, I'll rise again, and eventually ascend into heaven. He tells him, he lays it out for him. He says, this is what's going to happen, but I'm going to go anyways. And so he sets his uh, face to Jerusalem. And so last week we start, no, two weeks ago we started in Galilee, which is the northern part of uh, of, uh, Jerusalem, uh, of Israel. And then we, uh, last week, we kind of went down a little bit further into this uh, border of Samaria. And today we're going to pick up uh, from there, we kind of on the map, the first map here, this is kind of the route we have in the graphic, you know, uh, and, and we tell you how far it is and how much elevation change and all that sort of stuff. It's interesting. Something, something along those lines. That, that's the general route. When you begin, though, to unpack Jesus' journey from the north to the south, um, and you start piecing together some of the Gospels, which is sometimes a bad idea because it's not really how they were meant to be read. But if you do that and um, you start piecing together some other di- bits of of information around geography, my guess is that Jesus setting his face to Jerusalem actually looked a little bit more like this. Uh, The next slide here. Um, Which, you know, like when someone says like, I'm going to Jerusalem, and then they end up doing something like this, you, you worry about them. But this actually has its own lesson that I've had to learn the hard way, and maybe you've learned it as well. People often talk about the straight and narrow. Um, Scripture never talks about God's way as being straight and narrow. He talks about it as being narrow. It's hardly ever straight. Okay? And so this is Jesus' route to Jerusalem, but it's often our route to Jerusalem as well. It's all over the place, and we travel, and we stop, and we meander. And ever since the people of Israel wandered in the wilderness, we've been meandering towards our destination. And so today, our passage basically happens somewhere here. Our passage happens somewhere there. And uh, it's an interesting passage. Jesus, of course, knows he's going to be rejected. We looked at that last week. Um, He faced rejection at the beginning of the journey. But Jesus is going to continue to face barriers getting to Jerusalem. And the one I want to talk about today is, is a hard barrier. It's a hard thing to wrestle with. The passage itself is um, not the kind of passage you, you know, get framed and hang up as an inspirational story in your kitchen. Um, it's tricky, and it's, it's, it's a little convoluted, and it's a little hard to understand. So we're going to talk about it, and we'll see what God wants to do with it. Um, but it is found in Luke chapter 11. So if you have your Bibles, you can certainly go there. Um, I won't have any verses up on the screen today. Um, so you can follow along on your phone. You can follow along in, if you have a paper Bible, or you can just uh, listen as I read Um, the story, and we work through it. Luke chapter 11, starting with verse 14. Luke 11, verse 14. Here's what it says. Jesus was driving out a demon that was mute. When the demon left, the man who had been mute spoke. 
And the crowd was amazed. But some of them said, by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. Others tested him by asking for a sign from heaven. Let's pause there. Um, Jesus is in ministry. He's working his way to Jerusalem, but he's going through the countryside. He's, you know, he's, he's doing what he does. He heals people. He casts out demons. He, he's, he's doing this kind of work. And he does that. There's this individual who's experiencing um, uh, demon possession, and we won't get, we'll do a whole series uh, someday on, on spiritual stuff and different ways to look at it. But we'll just leave it as it is for now. He has this experience, this demon possession. Jesus goes and he casts him out. And Three responses are in this text. So they respond in three different ways, and maybe you're one of these responses. I don't know. But first, the majority of people, because it says the crowd, the crowd is amazed. So anytime you experience something supernatural like that, that's a, that's a pretty honest response. Like, this is crazy. Why, I, how did this happen? And the crowd is amazed. The second response is people are like, wait a second. Are you sure that he's doing that through God's power? Are you sure he's not doing that through Beelzebul's uh, power? Now, that word, uh, a, a tricky word, it's a god from the ancient Pal- Palestinian uh, religion, referencing Baal. It literally means Lord of the Flies, interestingly enough. Um, maybe you read the book on him then. But ultimately, Lord of the Flies, the whole idea of Lord of the Flies is Lord of Death is the idea. You know, flies roaming around, rotting flesh. So, so this is like Lord of the Lord of the Flies, and at this point in Israel, it was basically a nickname for Satan. So if you're a visitor with us today, we're going to talk about Satan, so that should be fun. Welcome. should be really encouraging and not complicated at all. Um, ultimately, Jesus is doing ministry, and a couple of people, we don't, probably some of the religious rulers, just based on the context of the story, says, yeah, but the stuff that Jesus is doing might look good, but do you know he's actually an agent of Satan? And let me just say that in the religious world, especially in Christianity and Judaism at this time, not a compliment. And it still kind of happens. In fact, just to be completely honest with you, there have been times in my life where I felt like I was doing something good, and someone suggested to me that it was actually the opposite. Has that ever happened to you? Well, you're like, you're engaged in good work. You thought it was good, but then someone comes along in a very even maybe violent sort of way, says, no, what you're doing is terrible and you're hurting people. If that hasn't happened to you, God bless you. It's happened to me. It's even happened to the extent where Christians still love to pull this card and say, well, you're actually, you're just furthering the, the, the cause of the enemy or, or maybe they word it in some other way. And, and people have said that to me. People have suggested that. And some people have done more than suggested it and said it. Um, in fact, it's something Christians love to do. You can, you can find all kinds of examples in pop culture. One of my favorites is articles that have to do with Hillsong United. You know the church and the worship band? We, we probably do some of their songs. There's a whole group of people that think they were doing work of the enemy. don't recommend reading their uh, blog posts, mostly because they're on really cheap websites. Very hard to read. Black backgrounds, fluorescent letters, that sort of thing. But, but they exist. So this is like, this is still a thing. People are like, I'm doing good work, but other people come along, no, you're not. You're actually doing, te- you're, not, you're not only doing something wrong, you're, you're furthering the cause of the enemy. And this raises a really important question, because I think at some point there's this, this if you're engaged in anything that could be remotely controversial, there are going to be people who disagree on how you handle it. 
They are. And there are going to be people who are violent towards you, who accuse you of doing really terrible things, especially if you're engaged in anything that's controversial. And mind you, most of the ministry Jesus calls us to is controversial. Anytime you move towards the margins, you're dealing with controversy. It's just, it's the, so this is something we're going to have to wrestle with. And we have to ask the question. And it forces this internal reflection on, is the light in me actual light or is it darkness instead? See, later on in this passage, um, going into verse 33, Jesus says this very thing. He says, um, in fact, verse 35, he says, see to it then that the light within you is not darkness. So Jesus agrees with the basic assumption that they're making towards him. Jesus agrees that, you know what, it's possible to think you're putting off light, but actually have darkness in you, which is what they're accusing Jesus of. And Jesus says, you know what, that, I don't disagree with you that that's possible. So then we have to ask the question, how do we know? How do you know we're furthering what's right? How do we know that we're standing up, for, that we're actually representing God? For anyone who, who, who takes any sort of leadership in the church or shares their faith you're repre- or takes the name of Jesus, say, I'm a Christian, you're representing God. How do you know that what you believe and what you think is actually representing God? Or maybe you've just been wrong this whole time. That's what we want to try to answer today. So going on, he says this. Verse 17, Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined and a house divided against itself will not fall. Uh, Little known fact, he wasn't quoting Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln was quoting him. Um, I love it because in my neighborhood, I don't know if it's still up there, there's this big billboard that has this quote and it says Abraham Lincoln under it. It's one of those like, um, you know, uh, think positive type of billboards. And I'm just like, yeah, well, Abraham didn't come up with that. Um, Jesus did. And, but it's in this particularly difficult passage about, about whether Jesus is actually on sides with Satan. Okay? So is Jesus an agent of Satan? And Jesus says, here's my first argument against it. If I'm an agent of Satan and I'm casting out demons that are associated with Satan, how can I be on Satan's side? That's mutiny. And if Satan's giving me the power to do it, there's no way that my ministry would last because Satan would shut me down if that's where I'm getting my power from. Like, I, it, it would be mutiny and I would be ended. And then he goes on and he, he explains more. He says, if Satan is divided against himself, how can his kingdom stand? I say this because you claim that I drive out demons by Beelzebul. Now, if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your followers drive them out? At this point, there were other people casting out demons in this time, and, and they were okay with those people casting out demons, but they're accusing Jesus of being you know, an agent of Satan because he was casting out demons. So he says, what about them? And then he says, but if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And then he goes on, verse 21. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are safe. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted and divides up his plunder. Jesus says, if there is a stronghold in someone's life, and this is the, the idea around the demon possession, Someone's, someone is possessed by something, a, a, a demon or a, an evil force, uh, however you want to look at it, there's this stronghold in their life. If that stronghold is taken down, it was taken down by someone who's more powerful than that stronghold. That's his logic. And we know God is more powerful than demons, so if I am able to cast out demons, then logically, what does that say about me? Certainly, then I am on God's side. He goes on in verse 24, when an impure spirit comes out of a person, 
It goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house swept clean and put in order. Then it goes and serves, uh, takes serve, uh, seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and they live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. Jesus takes this pivot as he's talking. They're challenging him, saying, hey, what's going on with you, Jesus? Are you an agent of Satan or are you an agent of God? How do we know? And he says, you know what? What I'm actually concerned with is not answering that question. What I'm actually concerned with is this. I just cast a demon out of someone's life. And you know what? Now they're actually more vulnerable than they have ever been. It's a principle here. That when you experience God or a sort of deliverance and something bad is removed from your life, that can't be the end of it. Because you're actually, you become more vulnerable. Someone interrupts Jesus. It's this woman um, who steps in. As Jesus was saying these things, a woman in the crowd called out, blessed is the mother who gave you birth and nursed you. In other words, she loves what Jesus is saying. Um, blessed, you know, blessed be your mother is like a, an old Hebrew blessing. So she's just saying, I'm, I'm with you, Jesus. I'm totally on board. And Jesus, I love this. He's like, no, no, you didn't let me finish. So let me turn this around and let me explain what I'm trying to say. He says, no, he replied, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. Jesus is saying, something is taken, something bad is worked out of your life. You experience the grace of God, the finger of God he refers to. There's this now, this chasm, and you've got to fill it with good stuff, or you could end up worse than where you started. Think of it like this. He's, he's using battle language here. And in a battle, go like medieval battle, you've got a castle, you've got a moat. You could maybe live your life on the fence, so you could live your life near the moat. But if there's a battle, the, the worst place to be is at the wall. You, you can't stay in the middle if there's people trying to charge the battle. And that's what he's saying. Like this guy whose demon was just cast out, he would just experience God's grace. He's, he's, he hasn't fully committed to the kingdom of God. He hasn't filled it with good things. We don't even, Jesus is probably thinking there's not even going to be a community to support him because they're all worried about me and not about him. And so what's going to happen to this guy? But you can't live in a battle in the middle when there are wars going on on each side. There's something really profound that happens when we experience grace or when we experience God's touch in our lives, it puts us in a place where we can't be neutral anymore. It's just not an option. Like if you experience the finger of God in your life, you, you, got, you, you don't have a choice anymore. You have to respond to it. You either reject it and you run the risk of being worse off than before or you accept it and lean into it, and, but you can't, you can't be neutral anymore. There's a, um, in the story, uh, Les Miserables, um, there's this really powerful scene where the main character, Jean Valjean, gets into this uh, house, gets invited into this house by this bishop and um, is invited to stay there and invited to eat a meal, and um, and and he uh, he then wakes up in the middle of the night and steals all of their silverware. And anyone familiar with the the story? Maybe saw the, the book, read the book, or watched one of the movies. And he he escapes. I, I have a clip here. I'm going to show it, Max. Um, and uh, and then I'll, I'm going to share it with you some brief thoughts that the the author um, Victor had to say about the experience. Here, watch this. 
You just stole the silver. So we'll use wooden spoons. I don't want to hear anything more about it. I'm sorry to disturb you. You caught him. But I had my eye on this man. Oh, and... thank God. I'm very angry with you, Jean Valjean. What happened to your eye, Monseigneur? Didn't he tell you he was our guest last night? Oh, yes. After we searched his knapsack and found all this silver, he claimed <laughs> that you gave it to him. Yes. Of course I gave him the silverware. But why didn't you take the candlesticks? That was very foolish. Madame Gillot, fetch the silver candlesticks. They're worth at least 2,000 francs. Why did you leave them? Hurry. Monsieur Valjean has to get going. He's lost a lot of time. Did you forget to take them? Are you saying he told us the truth? Of course. Thank you for bringing him back. I'm very relieved. Release him. You're really letting me go? Didn't you understand the bishop? Madame Gillot, offer these men some wine. They must be thirsty. Thank you. And don't forget. Don't ever forget. You've promised to become a new man. Promise? Why are you doing this? Jean Valjean, my brother, you no longer belong to evil. With this silver, I've bought your soul. I've ransomed you from fear and hatred. And now I give you back to God. book's always better than the movie, of course, right? Victor Hugo says this about this encounter that I think echoes what we read in the gospel today. He says, faced with all of these things, Jean Valjean reeled like a drunk. Did a voice whisper in his ear that he had just passed through the decisive hour of his destiny? That there was no longer a middle course for him? That if thereafter he were not the best of men, he would be the worst? That he must now, so to speak, climb higher than the bishop or fall lower than the convict? That if he wanted to become good, he must become an angel? That if he wanted to remain evil, he must become a monster? One thing was certain, though. He did not suspect it, that he was no longer the same man that all was changed in him, that it was no longer in his power to prevent the bishop from having talked to him and having touched him. There's moments in our lives where we, I think, experience maybe a profound touch of God and we are forced to make a decision. We're forced to, is Jesus who Jesus says he is or is he an agent of something else? And so some people said he's an agent of something else, but other people said, no, Jesus, we're willing to believe in you uh, but give us a sign. Show, prove it to us. Maybe that's where you're at. Maybe you're like, okay, I could, I could jump on board with this, give my entire life to Jesus, if you just prove it. So Jesus says, I'm only going to give you two signs. Let me summarize them for you. They're in verses uh, 29 to um, 32. He says, I'm going to give you two signs. The first one is the sign of Jonah. He tells the story of Jonah. How many, uh, how many of you all know the Jonah, the whale? It's a great little, great little story. Uh, VeggieTales has a great movie based on it. Um, he says, I'm going to tell you about Jonah. The people of Nineveh 
were living lives they shouldn't be living. They were, they were living corrupt lives. And Jonah goes reluctantly and tells them to repent, and they do. And then he says, someone greater than Jonah is here today. And then he says, let me tell you about the queen of Sheba. The queen of Sheba, now this would have been like a queen somewhere in the area of Yemen, um, and we don't entirely know like the historicity of it and all that sort of stuff. But he says, let me tell you about the queen of Sheba. Um, she had heard of Solomon's wisdom, and so she went to Solomon, she listened to Solomon, and she recognized the wisdom of Solomon. And Jesus says, let me tell you, someone greater than Solomon is here. Here's what he's saying. Nineveh and the queen of Sheba. Nineveh wasn't an Israelite nation. They had no understanding of the law. They didn't know what the Ten Commandments were. They, didn't, they, they, they weren't theologically trained. They were just people in some other part of the country living their life, and they happened to be living it wrong. But when someone told them and pointed out that they were messing up, they knew that they were right. They, they knew what was right, even though they had never been trained in it. They just knew. Queen of Sheba, the same thing. Queen Sheba, she wouldn't have been that familiar with the Old Testament. Maybe she had gotten a copy of the Proverbs. Maybe that's what made her want to go visit Solomon. We don't know. But she wouldn't have been raised in the Israelite faith. She would, she would have been an outsider. And yet, when she saw the wisdom of Solomon, she knew. She could tell, like, this is from God. This is something special. Jesus is saying this. You don't have to be educated. You don't have to have been raised in the church. You don't have to have... Mi- passages memorized. You don't have to have gone through catechism or confirmation. You don't have to have, you know, gone to seminary. When, when someone tells you that you're, that you're hurting other people and there's need to change that, what we call repent, even somebody who's never experienced religion knows when it's right. And he says, if someone comes and they share wisdom, you don't have to have any context for what is right or good or have any theological education. You don't have to be a pastor. When you see or hear wisdom, you should know it. And he says, now, me, Jesus, I'm here, and I'm greater than Jonah, and I'm greater than Solomon, and you guys can't see it. What's up with that? Jesus says, I think that I agree with Jesus. You don't have to have it figured out. You don't have to have it all memorized. You don't have to, you know, you don't have to have the education. But when you see it, you should know it. Maybe you didn't know it until you saw it. But when you see it, something should click. You should be able to tell. And so then Jesus goes on and he shares some things that he thinks the religious leaders of that time should repent of. And he shares some wisdom around those things. And that's what I want to read for you as we close. I just want to share with you a series of warnings that Jesus lays against the religious leaders. And I, want to, I just want to challenge you to approach these with a fresh pair of eyes. Maybe forget everything you've learned in Sunday school if you went to Sunday school and just approach it. And does something ring true? And then decide for yourself, where do you stand with Jesus? Do you, do you believe Jesus is from God, that Jesus is God? Do you, do you sense that God is in this or are you somewhere else? Are you, are you seeking truth somewhere else? Just for yourself, decide, does something about this ring true? So I'm going to read a couple of these warnings there just in the next uh, passage of Luke, starting with verse uh, 37. And uh, you can decide... For yourself. Verse 42 says this. He's uh, going and he's telling uh, these uh, Pharisees in a series of warnings. In one of them, he says this. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint, rue, and all kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter and leave, without leaving the former undone. Tell me if this rings true. 
religious people tend to fall in love with rules. They tend to fall in love with God's law. And they want to protect it, and they want to defend it, and they want to enforce God's law. Have you, have you met, maybe you've been this person, maybe you've met someone. Um, but what's terrible about this is that God sums up God's law in two rules. He says, love God and love others. That's, how, that's all the law and the prophets are summed up in these two rules. So obeying the law or defending the law isn't good enough. Because, because if you're truly obeying the law, then you would be intent on obeying those two. Love God and love other people. Which is what he's saying. Justice or love for others and love of God. You've neglected these. So the one thing you can ask is, you, is this person from God? You can ask, does this person claiming to be from God appear to have a love for God and other people more than a love for rules and tradition? Do I? And so you can ask yourself, does this, is something about this ring true for you? Is this something that you wrestle with? Is this something that you might need to repent of? Or is it some sort of insight where you're like, yeah, there's something true about that? And you can decide for yourselves who Jesus is. Jesus lays another uh, woe. He says in verse 43, he says, Woe to you, Pharisees, because you love the most important seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplace. You know, when people are given power, we want attention. I'm just saying, me, I want attention. I want recognition. I want to be congratulated when things go well. I love to, I love to hear when the sermon's good. I hate to hear when it's bad. And he's, But he's saying, like, Jesus teaches us that the kind of life, the kind of leader that is representing God doesn't have a desire for attention. The leaders who lead it or lord over other people or, or, or try to get attention, that they should repent, that they should change. And Jesus often, he does this very thing. In fact, in, a lot, in one of the Gospels, uh, Mark specifically, he often will do these really amazing things and then tell people, hey, don't go tell anyone I did this. And it's really confused Christians if you've ever studied this before. Like, why would Jesus, we're supposed to tell people about Jesus, but Jesus himself is saying, don't go tell people about me. And I think it's because we were meant to tell people about Jesus eventually, but in the midst of Jesus living on earth, Jesus is really intentional. Like, a person representing God can't seek attention. So he heals somebody, which would make him very famous, and he says, keep this to yourself. Because he's so intent on it not being about him, even though it is about him. How much more for us? So you can ask yourself, something about that ring true? Is that something that maybe even you've struggled with and that you need to ask to repent from, that you've sought attention when you shouldn't? Is there a sense of wisdom there that you're like, there's, there feels, I don't, I don't, maybe I don't even know anything about Scripture, but there's something that feels true about that, that, I, that leaders that are just there to get attention, that, that don't actually love people, that just love the way that people look up to them, like there's something wrong about that. You can decide for yourself. He goes on, verse 45, he says, um, in fact, he, uh, um, he, he transitions and he's talking to the teachers of the law now. And in verse 46, he says, and, and you experts in the law, woe to you because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry and you yourselves will not lift a finger to help them. He's building on what he said earlier. The religious rulers kept making it harder and harder for people to follow God. They had so many things that you had to do, all in the name of Scripture. They're all based in what Scripture said. They're all based in these rules, these laws that they had to follow. And so they, the more they read, the more they studied Scripture, the more rules um, that came about, and they would enforce these rules, and they kept adding more and more rules for the people to follow. And if they wanted to be close to God, they had to follow them. And each rule they added, they did nothing to help the people follow the rule. 
So imagine like this. Imagine that God sits at the top of a mountain. It's an, an ancient metaphor for God. Imagine he's sitting at the top of the mountain, and, and climbing the mountain itself is hard work. It, it takes investment of your time and your energy. But the lawmakers, this is what they would do. They would go ahead, and they would lay traps and walls, and they would tell people they couldn't go up this route because it was too easy and not narrow enough, and you had to go this route because it was more difficult. And then they would put up walls and, and block off certain things and make it harder. And so climbing the mountain, which was already really hard, they would make it even harder And then, when someone came along, they did nothing to actually help them climb the mountain. Jesus says this, a true leader, someone who's from God, would go ahead, see you coming, take the backpack off your back, put it on theirs, walk with you all the way to the top. And if a true leader isn't doing that, they're not representing God. They're just making it more difficult for you to get to God. They don't represent God. A true leader... It's going to come alongside somebody and help them get to the top. In fact, he goes on one step further. He compares it to a doorway. Verse 52, he says, if you scroll down a little bit, he says, Woe to you, experts in the law, because you have taken away the key to knowledge. You yourselves have not entered, and you have hindered those who were entering. He says, you teachers of the law. Here's this doorway, and inside the door is the kingdom of God, the community of God. And instead of going through the doorway and living as part of the kingdom of God, the teachers of the law were standing outside the doorway as bouncers. They had the keys. They weren't going in, and they weren't letting anyone else either. Jesus says one of the ways you can know someone's following God is, are they actually living in the community, or are they just concerned with who gets in? And you can decide for yourself. Is that something that you do? Is that something that maybe you need to repent from? Or is it just something that seems wise? You're like, there's something true about that. Yeah, there's something that, that rings true. I feel like that maybe that does reflect the heart of God. Maybe that is the way should, things should be, that, that there's this deeper community and this belonging that God wants to offer people and that Jesus wants to offer other people. I love this passage because Jesus really does make it clear. He says, you know what? Nineveh, they wouldn't have had any context for this. And the Queen of Sheba, she, did, she wasn't Jewish. And yet, and yet when they saw it, they knew. They had eyes to see and ears to hear. I want to invite you in just a few moments to reflect. Jesus, at the beginning of this journey, asks Peter, a very important question. Who do you say I am? I challenge you with that question now. 